are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Hi, Manufactured listeners. First things first, this is the last episode of season two. Ah, I can hardly believe it. Thank you so much for supporting us. We're so grateful that you take your time every week to listen. At the end of season one, we set out a couple of goals for this season. Like in season one, in season two, we wanted to continue diversifying sustainability narratives and continue to showcase more diverse voices within the sustainability conversation. But throughout season one, we noticed a persistent theme, trust, or rather the absence of trust between supply chain partners. So in season two, we wanted to make it our mission to look at the ingredients for achieving trust across the supply chain. And although trust seems like such a nebulous topic, our guests throughout season two have taught us just how obvious the answer is. In a way, I feel kind of stupid. It was right under our noses. There are so many related thoughts and emotions floating around each articulated in slightly different ways, but all fundamentally pointing to the same underlying thing, an unequal distribution of financial risk. Right. In other words, trust is a product or the result of partnership. Yeah. And the only acceptable definition of partnership, I think at least this is the conclusion I've come to after season two, is the Investopedia definition, an arrangement between two or more people to oversee in business operations and share in its profits and liabilities. And the sharing of risk, of course, should be relative to the margins or value added at each step in the chain. And in the fashion industry, they're not. They sit disproportionately with suppliers and arguably with, with workers. We'll be uh, diving even more deeply into what exactly we mean by partnership and shared risk in season three. We'll also be looking at different tools for knowing whether partnership is happening. And we'll be looking at uh, accountability. How do we hold players who break the rules of partnership accountable? We'll be back with season three in early 2021, probably late February. Though we do have a couple of other surprises in store for January. So stay tuned. But for now, we want to close season two by exploring an aspect of trust that we haven't covered much, and that's the trust between workers and factory management. As a former factory manager, I sometimes had a very positive relationship with my staff. But I equally sometimes had a very contentious relationship with my production staff. And I engaged in behavior that Prior to having worked as a garment factory manager myself, I would have unequivocally condemned. I remember desperately trying to explain to friends and family back home how it was all so much bigger than I was, how I felt like an extraordinarily little fish within this broader ocean. Sure, there were things within the four walls of the factory that I managed over which I had control, but the broader ocean inevitably seeped in and defined the size, look, and feel of that space. Today, we are extremely lucky to be joined by Matthew Rendell, a senior partner at Zico Law in Cambodia. Matthew has been in and out of Cambodia since 1994. He is a specialist in Cambodian labor law. On first glance, the law might seem like a universal tour. The law is the law. 
But with Matthew's help, we unpack its、uh, particularities within the Cambodian context and how this shapes the relationship between workers and factory managers within garment industry. But before we get into this, we need to give a bit of broader historical context for Cambodia specifically. Between 1975 and 1979, Cambodia was ruled by the Khmer Rouge. During this time, roughly a quarter of the population was killed. The leaders of the Khmer Rouge were part of a radical left educated in Paris in the late 60s. They idealized rural life and national self-sufficiency. Under the Khmer Rouge, cities in Cambodia were evacuated. People were sent to live an agrarian life in the countryside. Educated people were one of the groups specifically targeted by the Khmer Rouge. Meaning that after the genocide ended, the country suffered from an extreme lack of teachers, doctors, lawyers, etc., and had to start from scratch. During the Khmer Rouge regime, so between 1975 and 1979, there was internal strife amongst Khmer Rouge leaders. A faction, including the current Prime Minister Hun Sen, fled Cambodia to Vietnam. I think what people often don't realize about Cambodian history is that the war didn't end in 1979. The faction of the Khmer Rouge who fled to Vietnam were supported by the Vietnamese government to take control of the country. This Vietnamese-installed government ruled Cambodia throughout the 1980s. The end of this rule came with the end of the Cold War, after which UNTAC, the United Nations Transitional Authority, came in as a peacekeeping operation. So, 1993, just before Matthew arrived in Cambodia, was a very pivotal moment in, Cambo- in Cambodian history. A lot of the players were the same, but the rules were totally different. The country was being set up as a democracy, as a free market economy. How Matthew ended up in Cambodia in 1994 as a lawyer is a pretty crazy story. Almost, one might say, the stuff of movies. We are sure it as a separate time minutes bonus episode. But for the purpose of this episode, we are going to start Matthew's story when he arrives in Cambodia for what was supposed to be a one-year stint. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast. Not much of an Instagram person. We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. So, Matthew, you arrive in Cambodia in 1994 for what's supposed to be a one-year stint, and you need a way to make a living during that time. So, tell us, take us through what you what you did next. So I worked with the Asia Foundation, teaching law, doing law programs. You know, work with ministry drafting law on the on the Cambodia on the Asia Foundation law program, which is USAID funded. But I never left. I mean, one year became two. You know, my wife's Cambodia, and we had our kids there. Actually, I met my wife in the camp in Australia, so that's where we met. She was one of the boat people. And if we hadn't already convinced you to go and listen to the bonus episode, I hope this little clue piques your curiosity enough to go and listen to the full story. Really, really worth it. While I was there working for the Asia Foundation, this was the connection to the human rights,、oh, refugee stuff, the sort of the development sector, which brought me into the labour law. Because part of what we did with the Asia Foundation is we did a,、um, we taught law,、um, various guises. One of which had a, we had a certificate in law program, and, and a number of the we taught ministries various aspects of law. So we we're heavily involved in labour law. It had just come out in '97. 
Um, so prior to that, we were teaching various laws. Um, we, we, we wrote a series of legal textbooks on Cambodian law, one of which was a two volume labor law textbook based on the Cambodian labor law. We taught that to the ministries, um, to government officials, but also to unions who would come into our certificate in law programs and take these courses. So maybe you can give some context for the Cambodian legal system and how the labor law actually came about in Cambodia and what are its origins? When the, when, uh, the Khmer Rouge were ousted in 79 um, and the Vietnamese installed a regime, they basically said that any laws prior to 79 were no longer applicable. So the state of Cambodia, SOC, drafted a series of laws. They drafted contract law. They drafted sort of a... a there, there the Vietnamese this, this, did. Well, the state of Cambodia government, which was Vietnamese installed. So the Hun Sen, yeah. you know, the early early phase of the Hun Sen regime, the Heng Sam Win and those guys. And Hun Sen was a foreign minister back then. But mm. um, yeah, that, that regime. So they, they would, but clearly it was sort of on the basis of socialist laws. So their contract law was very socialist. It, everything had to be equal and this, that, and the other. Um, and so they would put together a series of laws uh, that they needed, I suppose, at the time. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of international trade, for example. There weren't, there weren't many commercial laws. Uh, but they had their own criminal code. They had certain things. Um, there technically was still a civil code from the French days. It kind of was still around. Um, but on the whole, they had their property laws. Um, there was a series of laws, their land law of 92. There was a series of laws that were in place by the state of Cambodia regime. So basically, when we came in 94, started teaching, it was those laws that we were teaching, the the, the contract law from 1987 or 88, and there were the land law of 92, which was the state of Cambodia. Um, so what happened was the UN kind of had a program and it kept on after to the civil society of, of, of putting in place these various laws that were necessary for a country that was now engaging with the big wide world. So their constitution made it a free market pluralistic society. So the laws had to be put in place to make a free market. Of course, it wasn't free market prior to 89. Um, so it had to be free market based laws. And so when we came with the Age Foundation, we were requested by the Ministry of Justice to teach contract law to the ministry people, to the judges, because this was the most important law because they were now trading. And they were now, so we taught the Cambodian contract law, international contract law, sale of goods, anything we could. We had a six-volume program put together that went over the space of, um, I think it went over the space of two years or something. Um, and we taught judges and everybody of every sort of aspect of contract law you could think of. Um, and so that was, and that, that spun out to the, um, teaching all the other laws. So at that stage, um, consultants had been brought in. So depending on the country the consultant came from would be kind of the type of law you'd end up. So the labor law was written by the Americans. <laughs> no, really? Yeah. So, you know, the French did the civil code and the Japanese did the, 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 the French did the criminal code, the Japanese did the civil code. Um, you know, the Americans did um, the sale of goods law. The Americans did um, the, the labor law. The, so depending on where the consultant came from, the land law is heavily influenced by by the Australians, for example, that was based on the Torrance Hyrule system. So they got this mishmash of laws. Um, and so, you know, good luck trying to understand them. These poor people, you know, no one was really educated at that stage. When we started mm-hmm. the Body Bar Association in 97, I mean, basically the USAID just said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll teach, we'll put 50 people through a six month law course and they will be Cambodia's first body of lawyers. And so that, that is Cambodia's first 50 lawyers. Like we, we taught them it's like, here's a week on contract law and they didn't understand any of it. 
Um, but it'd be very difficult if you don't have a legal background to teach it and to do it in six months. But, you know, they had to have somebody. So these, this became Cambodia's first bar association lawyers. These ones went through the six month UN funded, um, or USAID UN funded sort of American taught by the University of San Francisco largely, uh, law course. And so they got this very brief bridge law course and that became Cambodia's first, um, you know, cadre of lawyers. So what about the labor law specifically then? The labor law in 1997 was the you know, two aspects that one was the, the aspects around, um, around unionization, so to speak. And that was largely after the American Free Labor Institute was heavily involved, heavily involved in the draft and law of rule. So that was largely in American law. So I kind of get the sense that Cambodia's legal system was very much imposed from outside. Can you give an example of how this plays out in practical terms? Where, where you can see this, that it's written by outside of the Cambodian context is really with the holiday provisions. So the holiday mm. provisions, you know, deem that you have to have annual leave because, you know, America, Western countries have annual leave. You know, it's almost, you know, it's a week or it's two weeks or it's four, whatever it is, but you've got to, so by they say it's a right, it's an, of, of all workers get annual leave. But what they didn't realize was that Cambodia already had that in the guise of Khmer New Year, Chumban, the water festival, this all added up. And that was their traditional holidays. And that's when everybody took holidays at the same time. And that was the way, and that's very common in, in the region, but that was the way holidays were handled in the Cambodian workplace and had been since time immemorial. So, but of course, this law is written by Westerners and they say, no, 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 you have to have what we call annual leave. And everyone has the right to, and in this case, they, it, it was meant to be, um, it was meant to be three weeks, but because it's uh, they didn't quite know it was a five day work day, six day work week, you know, it ended up being 18, 18 days, right? Which is three times. So because the labor law is written to get the data factory sector up and running. So it's six day work weeks, 18 days holiday year, three weeks holiday year. But of course, if you're on a five day work week, that's almost four weeks a year. So again, you see where they hadn't really thought it through and then one size fits all. And then part of if you read that part is if you, everybody's inside 18 days, um, but it should be taken during Khmer New Year and Chumban if possible. And think, well, but they already have public holidays at that time. So this is what they haven't right. thought through. So of course, no one, so then we end up with the Cambodian traditional annual leave, which is already, you know, 10, 12, 15 odd days, in addition to the Western annual leave of 18 days or three weeks. And now we've got this double lot of annual leave. So you could see where a foreigner coming in and writing a law, you know, sitting in some hotel suite somewhere, you know, writing so with all best intention and basically just almost cookie taking system, you know, time and tested ways of doing things. Let's just plug it into Cambodia to rethink this um, annual leave, all the usual stuff. Let's just put it into law and, you know, write Cambodia label over the top and done. Um, but of course, you know, the, it, it bumps up against some, some traditional aspects of Cambodian life. So the, the, the holiday is a classic example of that. So now we've got this weird scenario where we've got an inordinate amount of holiday. So we, we should never have given the annual leave on top of that being the point. We have one or the other, but don't have that. I think in total, there were like, when I was there, there were 27. Public holidays. Yeah, yeah public 28, holidays. Yeah, 27, yeah. 28 yeah. public holidays yeah. plus yeah. 18 days of annual yeah. leave. But the, the Cambodian labor law on paper is pretty good in terms of protecting its workers, right? Very much so. I think the focus when it was written was that. But the problem is that, that it's not really followed, right? Um, it's not really in for, uh, yeah, but I mean, it's not followed both ways. That's the problem. It's not followed. It's not followed 
um, it's not enforced either way. Mm. I mean, that's why you see unions having illegal strikes and there doesn't seem to be any, you know, pushback on that um, because they can and, and they won't enforce that provision that says that strike's illegal. But it's more a dysfunctioning judicial system or difficult to do a judicial system which makes it hard to enforce the law. The government yeah. don't get involved, if anything. I mean, where we do need them, that's the problem. The government just say, you guys deal with it, you guys sort it out. And they they don't want to be, because there's constituencies on both sides. You know, the, the workers are a big part of the government's voting base. Um, right. And the government don't really intercede at all. If anything, the problem with the government is they, they don't do anything rather than come down on one side and, and you know, heavily either way. You know, they're reticent to get involved at all. So what's the, I want to pivot a little bit because you've painted this picture about the legal context in Cambodia, that it's a mishmash of laws from different places. It's not really, let's say, Cambodian uh, or adapt, maybe in all cases, adapted to the Cambodian context. So I'm curious, like, what does that do to trust? And what's the role of trust in legal systems? And how would you describe trust in the legal system in Cambodia? And in other contexts, how is trust in the legal system established? I think, yeah, when, when you've got a Cambodia's legal system, the, 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 the legal the court framework, is, it's newly established. I mean, you know, prior to the UN coming in and, and the new world order there, I mean, most disputes are resolved at the village level. So the village leader was basically granted the authority or the role to resolve disputes on a traditional basis um, within their communities. That would have worked fairly well. Courts basically, you know, courts were under the government in those days. It was the appeals actually to the Ministry of Justice uh, for the bigger cases. So the courts were keeping tabs on, on, on the government were keeping tabs on the courts. Anyway, by law, I mean, that was the structure they had. Um, it wasn't the, the three branches of government scenario back then. So, and the, and the role of the village chief was to resolve disputes, you know, within there. And that's why you still see in Cambodia, if you go to land disputes, it all starts at the, at the commune level. They know exactly, they're meant to know who lives where, and this and the other, and the government's saying, look, this is your area, you solve this, you know, get these guys to agree. And, and the law wasn't seen as really the, 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 the tool for that. Whereas where we come from, the law, that's the role the law plays. You can't have somebody do something outside the law. The law will decide who's right, who's wrong, but the law does get Im- implemented. Uh, to the letter of the law. So we have a rules-based society. But I suppose in that sense, it was more a, a, a communal society whereby disputes would have been resolved by conciliation. And that explains why the first step for somebody is to go to the Ministry of Labor and you do conciliation. Um, it's the same with family law in, in Cambodia. It has to be conciliation first. We tried that. The courts have a role of conciliation first, even even under the new system. So they're very much a conciliation-based um, society, and that worked. You know? how, would, how would you define for like for somebody who hasn't heard that word? What would you? How would you say? How would you differentiate conciliation from say like a, a firm a firm legal of legal decision? It's, it's it's basically a person will mediate. And try mm-hmm. to get the two parties to agree to 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 a, to yeah. a solution. And, and if they can't get those two parties to get a meeting of the minds, then there's no decision. And then it has to. The court will then say, "Okay, you're right, you're wrong." But they don't want anybody to say, "You're right, you're wrong." And it's just okay. Let's give a little take of it. And you'll see that actually when you're in Cambodia and the minister, they can't. I know they're not wrong, but give them a little bit of that. You get that, and it solves the whole problem. That's typically the way they like to to address things. Um, they don't want a winner and loser. 
uh, maybe it's a face issue, whatever. They don't want to win or lose, so they don't want. So they want to come and give a little here, give a little there. You see it in car accidents in Cambodia. You know, if I'm if I'm totally in the right in a car accident because I'm the wealthier person, come on, you've got to pay that guy. So I know he ran into. You, I know this, but look, you this, you know, let's give a little gift and and we'll resolve it this way because we can. Mm. Uh, but you see that on the streets of Cambodia. So that that's the mindset. So when you impose a, a, a rules based system on top of that, yeah, it, it pushes up against the traditional way of doing things. And so it takes a bit of getting used to. So the judges first, again, even their first sort of thought will be to try and get the parties to settle every time. Um, they don't want to say somebody's right, somebody's wrong. They don't want to be that person doing that. So they'd love to have them settle back to the old village leader, you know, trying to settle amongst the people he lives with at the end of the day, right? So um, so that that's what it is. So with Labor, you go down to the Ministry of Labor and, and they'll try to conciliate. So the trust in the system, yeah, I mean, in a sense, the courts were not part of the norm, I suppose. So um, would there be a suspicion the courts make decisions for reasons other than the law? Certainly. Um, and so I suppose a person said whoever's going to whoever's going to um, triumph in the courts is going to be the more powerful or richer person. To a large degree, we have the same sense in the West, though. I mean, the person with the most money typically can prevail. And so, in a sense, we it's done through different ways because we can sort of out-sue somebody and just sue them if they give up. Um, but I suppose they're thinking the more powerful or the richer person can probably, you know, utilise that system better. So so would there be a trust in, in the law? And this comes from both both parties, by the way. So even the employer is saying, I don't want to go to Cambodian court because if I go to Cambodian court, mm-hmm. I know they're going to side with the Cambodian. Now, that may or may not be the case, but they would have right. this. They, they know they've lost complete control once it gets into the hands of the judges. So the suspicion is decisions are being made for reasons other than the black letter of the law. You don't have to give reasons for your decisions. That always creates a problem. Now, Cambodia is starting to do that a little bit now, and I think under the new, certainly the new arbitration council um, and our understanding under the new commercial court, they're saying that you have to give reasoned decisions. This will help a lot in in putting trust in the system. But if you have a a chamber whereby a judge can make a decision, not have to give reasons for it, then it's very difficult to trust that system. Um, and so trust will come as as the courts evolve and develop and they get more trained people in there and the ability to to give reasoned decisions and write them down. This is where the Labor Arbitration Council was good. It gave decisions. And initially, the the employers we did not trust. I was I was in camp at this stage. I was the first arbitrator on the arbitration council, by the way. The, the Can neutral. you just maybe explain in briefly what that is? Yeah. So so what happened was about ten twelve years ago, we established a an, an arbitration center, an arbitration council to look solely at uh, workplace disputes. And the idea was to try and give a, a forum for the, it was largely around the garment sector at that stage, um, for these wildcat strikes that were happening, um, to try and give a forum basically for the worker to be heard. Um, so they've got this grievance. Um, if it's a, you know, a, a, not an individual dispute, but a common dispute, um, then it can go to this, this, uh, this forum, the arbitration council, and they will hear both parties and they will give a decision. Now, Either party can choose to reject that decision and then it will go to the court, but no party was entitled to take any action when it's strike or lockout until that decision had been given. Um, mm-hmm. to any strike up until that point was illegal. Any lockout up until that point was illegal. Um, the arbitration council could make certain interim measures, but you, you were free to strike only after a decision had been rendered and you'd rejected it. 
So I want to shift gears here for a moment and share an anecdote, a personal anecdote, and sort of with all this context in mind that you've shared, Matthew, get your thoughts on what you make of it. And I want to start that anecdote with a question. And that question is, is it safe to assume that workers want secure jobs? I used to think that this was always unequivocally true. In fact, until quite recently, I thought protection from a fundamentally precarious human, human existence and a job were synonymous. But my time working as a garment factory manager led me to question whether this is true everywhere or for everyone. On my first official day as general manager of Pactix Phnom Penh, I planned to issue a warning notice to my production supervisor, let's call him Yano. That this was planned for my first official day was really a coincidence. I'd been interim general manager for a couple of months already, and during that time had had several conversations with Yano about the fact that he didn't get along well with other managers and was often found screaming on the production floor. Despite these efforts, nothing had changed. It was time to issue a formal warning notice, and it just so happened that this meeting was scheduled for my first official day. I want to press pause for a minute and share some of my expectations going into this meeting with Yano. First, I assumed that my staff, Yano included, wanted a job, and that I held some power because I was the gatekeeper to that job. And why did I think that? Well, I guess my whole life taught me to think of employer-employee relationships that way. My bias, whether conscious or unconscious, was that he and my other employees had good jobs in a context where these were hard to come by. They were on permanent contracts. Yano was in his mid-twenties and earning over $1,000 a month. We had free daycare on site. We rarely did overtime, and when we did, we followed the labor law. It was compensated, voluntary, and never more than a total of 10 working hours per day. We had a safe working environment. We had a canteen and offered free lunch. And when it came to annual leave, as has been mentioned in this conversation, we also followed the labor law, which was quite unusual. And we actually offered and honored the 18 days of annual leave that were required by the labor law on top of the 28 public holidays. Second, I expected Yano to respect my authority. Like I said, his job was particularly well-paid, and even as a middle-class, educated Cambodian, it would have been difficult to find a comparable job elsewhere, both in terms of compensation and working environment. Third, I expected workers on the production floor, people who were managed by Yano, not to get involved in the, issue, in the decision to issue Yano a warning notice, primarily because I thought receiving a warning notice was embarrassing, and that the perceived loss of face would motivate Yano not to share this information with his team. But even if they did somehow find out, the most I expected was curiosity or, or even disagreement, but I, I didn't expect them to claim a say in the decision. So what happened? I explained to Yano that he was receiving a formal warning, and he refused to accept it. He informed me that I was wrong to issue him a formal warning, and he wouldn't sign the forms from Human Resources. He then threatened me. He told me he had friends at the Ministry of Labor, and if I went ahead with the warning notice, he would make trouble for me on the production floor. He would take, quote-unquote, his people with him. In other words, he did none of the things that I expected. He put his cards on the table and effectively told me, Here's why I'm more powerful than you. I promptly suspended him, and he then refused to leave the building. In the end, security had to escort him out. And sure enough, his team refused to work. 
Initially, I thought it was a misunderstanding. Maybe Yano had made up a story. I was sure that once I explained what had happened, they would go back to work. They would see that Yano's refusal to accept formal feedback from his manager was egregious misconduct. I also thought that if I made it clear that they would be heard, that we would have a chance to talk and that they could share their feedback, that they would go back to work. I told them that I welcomed their point of view and was happy to meet with them in small groups to get their input, but that refusing to work was no way to get their point of view across. My appeals got me nowhere. They refused to go back to work until Yano had a chance to come back in and present his case, and then they would decide together whether I'd been right to suspend him. So obviously that was not something that I was going to concede to. At the time, it seemed to me that they were acting against their own self-interest. Their behavior struck me as totally illogical and irrational. After a couple of hours, the CEO of the company, who was based in Siem Reap, five hours away, issued a letter stating that workers who refused to work were welcome to do so, but they needed to leave the premises and would not be paid. This resulted in a ceasefire of sorts. Most people went back to work. A couple decided to go home. Yano continued to hang around in the parking lot, trying to drum up support for his cause, and for the week that followed, the situation was pretty precarious. It got to a point where some of the other managers expressed concerns to me about their safety. My father-in-law, upon finding out what had happened and who is Cambodian, insisted on escorting me to and from work. The people around me who knew the country well were concerned and scared. You can't just call the police in Cambodia. They need to be paid to come. And even then, the usefulness of their presence is doubtful. I discussed this with a lot of the Cambodians in my life, and nobody, including the CEO of the company, my boss, thought that this would help anything. So in the end, I had to make a judgment call. And for me, the physical safety of some of my staff trumped everything else. Through some loose personal connections, I was able to leverage contacts in government. I was able to invite a senior government official to tour the factory. He arrived in his SUV with government license plates and bodyguard. He toured the factory, shook hands with my workers, introducing himself as a close contact of mine, handed over his business card, and exchanged small talk. In the very non-confrontational and indirect way that governs so many interactions in Cambodia, he was making it clear that I had friends in high places. After that, Yano never came back. To him, it was now clear that whatever connections he had, mine were better, and no matter what he tried, he would lose. I'd effectively intimidated my workers. This was not how I imagined my first week on the job would go, and it really shook me to my core. I thought I could do it better. An interest in social justice was the reason I'd taken the job in the first place. So why did this happen? Well, for a long time, I had a really difficult time with this question. My first reaction was to defend myself, to share all of the things I've already shared with you about our wages, our benefits, etc. But I quickly realized that by defending myself, I was effectively saying that my workers didn't know what was best for them. And even though I truly didn't understand why they behaved the way that they did, Claiming that they were acting against their own self-interest also wasn't the kind of patronizing position that I wanted to claim. So how to make sense of their actions? I want to give a little bit of context about Cambodia, which has been alluded to, I think, throughout this conversation. And that's that power is government and money, neither of which, I think, upon going into that meeting with Yano, I appeared to possess. I mean, 
I rode to work on a secondhand scooter. There is no confidence in rule of law. Companies come and go all the time. Impunity pervades every aspect of people's lives. There is no trust that if you work well or if you work hard, you'll be promoted. No confidence that a contract means anything. People don't trust institutions. So I want to go back to what I thought I offered. A good job, a permanent contract, in a place where contracts don't mean much. Nothing about me indicated that I had the kind of power that meant something in the world in which I was operating, at least in the beginning when I was going into that meeting. As for the workers, of course people are happy for a paycheck, but I think repeated interactions over the years that followed made it clear to me that my colleagues did not perceive a permanent contract to be their golden ticket. At the end of the day, it was not the surest, most effective way of protecting themselves against a fundamentally precarious existence. A lot more effective as a strategy was to make sure that you were aligned with people of power and protected by people in positions of power. Cambodia is very hierarchical. I've often thought about whether these, how much this kind of incident takes place in a purely Cambodian enterprise. So if you go to, you know, sort of Chipmong's Brewery, or you go to, do, do we do we get the same type of industrial relations there as we do in in foreign run enterprises? And to be honest, I've never heard so much about it. You know, I know the guys in Chipmong, and I know the guys from Batanak, and I know the guys from, you know, from Atwood, and they don't seem to. As far as I can see, yeah, but those are all people this, who are very close to power too. Correct, right? right? A lot. Being the point, so so right. so the Cambodians, so they can't use this bluff of I know people in the ministry and they're going to. So you're thinking, yeah, it wouldn't happen in a Cambodian enterprise, but it happens in a in a Western enterprise for those two reasons. A, they believe that they can achieve that because they do believe there's certain empowerment because they're local over the foreigner. The foreigner does not want to get involved in authority or force. So we can call that bluff. Until he got called out by you, we had people in the ministry, and he realised, well, okay, that's not going to work because no, you know, I've been called out on that one and, and had to sort of move on. But when when I hear these stories, and you think, what was, and you hear these back in the old days of the Wild West America, you know, when the legal system was evolving, when the sheriff ran everything, when the rule of law didn't, run, it was just kind of the same chaos, right? I mean, we had this. It was like in that early stages of development, and and the institutions weren't strong, and they weren't rule of law, and you kind of get these people trying, okay, how how can I? play best. Some people thrive in those scenarios who wouldn't thrive in a rules-based, you know, institutionally strong society. But we have to remind ourselves, it was only 20 years ago, this, the war was still on, you know, it's, it's, it's still fairly recent, you know, although parents were never educated, uh, they've just come out of the war. And so, yeah, I assume there's this chaos to a degree. Mm-hmm. It, it'll, it'll lessen as time goes by, you know. But that's, I guess, the question, because I talk to a lot of people within sustainability departments and brands Mm -hmm. who say, who ask me, well, like, what do we do? What do we need to do to support factory managers to have better relationships with their workers? And I'm kind of like, I don't know what to answer to this question. There's no shortcut. shortcut. If you think about it from the education perspective, right? So we take this back to 1975 when the Khmer is going to wipe out all educated people. So suddenly, and the war goes on, right? But for my wife, we sort of missed all this, right? And so no schooling, so the other, and 79 comes along, the Vietnamese come in. But the war still goes on for another 10 years. Nobody's going to school. So you've got the situation where you've got no educated people. So it takes, what is it, say 16 years to educate a person fully, primary school or senior and, and, and tertiary education. So you've got a situation where probably when the UN came, 93 is the first time somebody, parents could send their kids to school knowing 
you know, they can safely go to school. They're not going to get dragged out of class and to go to fight the war. So this is, this is the first person in grade one who will get a full 16 years of education started in 1994. So that takes us to 2000. They, they can go back in and teach the next generation. They're being taught, they were taught by people who were not educated. So they go back mm. in. So now you've got another 16 years to get somebody being taught by somebody who themselves was educated. So now we're at like 2032 or something. But even those people's teachers were not educated properly. So it's a, we recently got three sort of 60, 50 years of, of, you know, to get a, what we have in the rest of the region, which is properly educated people. You can't really shortcut that. I mean, we do get, you get the bright ones as you do in any society. You know, we get some really bright people uh, and they manage to, we can send them overseas to get maybe a, a university overseas, but they're the, you know, the handful of people. I think certainly the idea of getting as much Cambodian management into place as possible, absolutely. What you guys describe is very interesting. It's basically, in my eyes, is um, it's a conflict between a mentality from a law-based society and a mentality came from a traditional agriculture society. As you said, a highly hierarchy system. A hierarchy system is actually a jungle, a game of jungle. And a game of jungle basically is a competition of muscles. Who get bigger muscles? Who is the king? Who can get almost every resources and so on? So a law-based society gave up a competition of muscles. They use laws, orders, all sorts of um, regulations and so on to mediate conflicts and to solve those conflicts in another way. So you see when foreign management... In this case, it doesn't matter you are a um, European or American or, or Chinese. It doesn't matter. Anyway, as long as you are foreign management, you came to this country, get into a government factory, manage group of people who has this strong mentality about hierarchy. Um, unless you show your muscle. Otherwise, it's very difficult because it's a win and lose game. You see, mm. Kim, if you, if you didn't show your muscle, then you are going to, uh, you see, you are lose. going to lose. Yeah. And, but, yeah. but the guy cannot step back because he is going to lose in his own community. So he will lose. Mm. So he cannot, he cannot and he will not step back. And the cash education, I think here means um, a change of the mentality, switch from a hierarchy system, from a jungle game to a kind of, law-based society, believe in something out of the natural bond, believe in something out of your natural connection or your, your, your muscles, basically your believe in something invisible and believe that thing can solve the conflict. Yeah, but I think, you know, like Jesse's saying, you know, there's this thing about the strongest person rises to the top. We're still with that. And that's I think this is where you, the union leaders get in those positions to start with through, through a force of strength. I want to jump in here because... To be honest, as somebody who has been educated in the West, quote-unquote West, and has been educated in a particular left-leaning, critical uh, sort of way, my I, I sort of have alarm bells going here. And my impulse is to say, wait a minute, we must not put economic development on a linear trajectory. And economic development is not about less developed economies or passing through a prescribed set of stages until they reach quote-unquote adulthood. But actually, I, I think my impulse and sort of my anxiety 
I think in part driven, especially these days by cancel culture and making sure that you always say things in exactly the right way, um, caused me to actually miss your real point. I, d- I think both of you, the, the, for both of you, the object of your observations is the concept of equality. Um, nothing to do really with economic development and theories of economic development. And I was recently listening to the podcast Philosophize This, which I highly recommend. Um, and this particular episode episode number 144 was about the positions articulated by the sociologist Max Weber. And I think they're really helpful in the absence of the rule of law. Equality is basically impossible and affects the way that people or puts parameters on people in terms of the way that they are able to interact with one another. So I quote, Well, Max Weber would say that with increased levels of equality within our social institutions, the more truly equal everyone is, the closer we get to that ultimate goal, we will always have to deal with higher level of dehumanization and increased levels of bureaucracy. The classic example of this that you can find in tons of essays on Weber's work is to think about how things work at the Department of Licensing or the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles. What is the first thing you do when you walk into the DMV? You take a number and you sit down until your number is called. Outside the doors of the DMV, you are an individual person. You have friends, family, social status, values. But inside the doors of the DMV, you become a number. Now let's say the reason you went to the DMV that day was because of some sort of emergency situation. Let's say your mom was sick and needs someone to take care of her, but she lives upstate, your license is expired, so you have to get it reinstated so that you can drive up there and take care of her. Now let's say you go up to the counter and the person behind the counter tells you that there's a 48-hour waiting period for them to be able to renew your license. There are a serious number of people out there that would lament the fact that the DMV wouldn't look at their individual situation and make an exception. Maybe put their form at the top of the pile. Maybe just run in the back real quick and fix my license right now while I'm here. Why can't this person behind the counter just treat me like a human being? Why can't they smile and say, how you doing? What brings you into the DMV on this fine day? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your mother. Why can't this person take things on a case-by-case basis? Why must I be a number instead of a name? Max Weber would say, So, in other words, what you want is a privileged status, preferential treatment over everyone else. Some people are more charismatic or good-looking than other people. What if the person behind the counter just likes people with blue eyes more than people with brown eyes? What would happen at that point is... That anyone born with brown eyes would instantly be part of some sort of underprivileged class that doesn't get their form put at the top of the pile for their entire lives because of something they were born with that was completely out of their control. How is that equal? End quote. And somehow this quote really, I think, brings to life the invisible infrastructure that's needed to achieve normative goals like equality. You can imagine when you hear this example, what happens when that infrastructure isn't there? And in this case, it's like almost like as a factory manager, you are at a crossroads or you're at the intersection of these two very different worlds. And you've got sort of these international norms and standards that come in, which you're asked to implement and to uphold, but in a context where the infrastructure it just really isn't there to be able to do so. 
And and I don't think that there's sort of recognition that the absence of this infrastructure, of this invisible infrastructure, fundamentally affects the way that people engage with one another and the types of relationships that they are able to have with one another, including between factory manager and workers. I just suddenly remembered the example Matthew made at the beginning of the interview. He made the example of how village uh, village chief solve conflict. So basically, you don't say who is wrong, who is right. Basically, yeah. by saying who is wrong, who is right, is like you win, you lose. That yeah. that's, that's definitely yeah. not acceptable. Yeah. So the village chief, chief will give you a little bit and give the other one a little bit. It's like there is a car accident in the road. In a lower based society, it's very right. And I wasn't willing to give him anything. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah. And, and, and law yeah. is win lose. Law has to have a winner or loser. You're right or you're right under the law. But like just yeah. saying, yeah. But I was just thinking it's almost impossible to uh, impose this uh, this approach in a, in a garment factory or in an in a industrial uh, facility. It's almost impossible. Imagine you act like a village chief, uh, chief. Okay, then you have this guy who obviously uh, broke several rules, and you, how can you give a little bit to him and give a little bit to the management staff he insulted or he offended? You, you cannot, right? You, you really cannot, right? So, so it sets up and like us versus them. Yeah, yes. you know, business can't handle that because business has to move on, get the stuff made, get it. We don't have time. The village chief lives with these people day in day as one of his roles, and if it doesn't over time, we can find a solution to this 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 problem. But you can't, in a factory floor, you've got to get production going, get it moved on. You haven't got time to yeah do these conciliation activities. That that's a problem. It doesn't. But here you represent the foreign capital behind you. You re- re- represent yeah. the company. You cannot use the company resources to give this one little bit and to give the other one little bit. You mm. cannot, you see. Right. I can't. Yeah, so yeah. But I mean it's interesting you mentioned before about it's not a win lose because the Prime Minister's big thing is win win, right? It's the same thing at the very top. He's got a win win solution. They love saying mm. that. Matthew, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. It's been so interesting getting to to talk to you and to hear your insight and to just, I think, zoom out for a minute. I mean, we talk a lot about the relationship between brands and factories, between factories and workers, but to just kind of zoom out and look at like, what's the context here for like where all of these relationships are taking place and how does that context shape how those relationships play out and I think it's a really important question because it was certainly like my experience was that these things that are sort of bigger than you are and these external forces really in many ways define the possibilities for what these relationships can look like. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.